All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Citizens. Uh, if it's your first time here visiting, I really want to welcome you. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff uh, at the church. Um, again, want to echo what, what DC said. If you're new or visiting for the first time, definitely um, feel free to come back after the 12 p.m. service uh, for Taco Day. But also, if you just want to learn more about the church or you have any questions about ways you can get plugged in, uh, usually we have staff and volunteers hanging, hanging out around the info table, so we'd love to get to know you, uh, meet you, and help you get plugged in uh, to our community. Uh, well, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4, we're looking at verses uh, 8 to 10, so just those three verses, 1 Peter, chapter 4. Verses 8 to 10, if you're following along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, uh, I'm going to be reading uh, the NIV. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, this is the reading of God's Word. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our hearts and our eyes uh, and our ears to receive what you would have for us today. We thank you and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we are nearing the end of our liturgical life series, uh, where for the past few months we've been examining the various practices and rhythms that shaped Jesus' life. And, and when you look at Jesus, uh, he was someone who didn't have much by modern standards. Um, he didn't own a home. He wasn't married. He didn't have kids. Uh, he was a blue-collar worker didn't have much money, didn't have many friends, and, and the few friends he did have weren't that great. And, um, you know, you would typically look at someone with a life like that and say, man, that's a, that's a pretty miserable life, pretty miserable guy. And, and yet when you read the Gospels and you read about Jesus' life, you see a picture of a person who's actually the opposite of miserable. You see a man full of love and joy and peace. You see someone confidently rooted in his identity, someone who lived with a deep sense of gratitude and purpose, someone who knew how to have fun, someone who knew how to rest. Um, and I know that for many of us, uh, though by the world standards, we have actually a lot more than Jesus did. Uh, that just isn't our reality. You know, we live lives full of anxiety and insecurity and discontentment, not knowing who we are or where we stand or um, what the meaning of life is. And, and to you, Jesus says, come follow me. There's a better way to live. Come experience life in my kingdom. And each week in this series, we've looked at one specific practice and examined how that practice allows us to live in the kingdom of God, to experience life as it was meant to be lived. And we come today to the final practice, the practice of hospitality. Hospitality. Okay, the word hospitality that we just read in our text today is the translation of a Greek word, philoxenia, which is basically two words put together, philo, which means love, right? It's where we get words like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, um, and xenia, which means stranger or outsider or other, 
Okay, so when you put the two together, you basically get a word that means love of the stranger, love of the outsider, love of the other. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield has an incredible book on hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she has my favorite definition of hospitality. And she says, hospitality is the practice of turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Okay, strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. It's creating a space of welcome where the outsider can feel at home. And it's interesting that Peter's call to hospitality comes immediately after a call to love. Right? And in fact, every time we see this word used in Scripture, it's always used immediately after a call to love. In Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, we read, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. In Romans 12, 9 to 13, Paul is talking about what a love in action looks like. And at the end of that entire text, he ends with this one directive, practice hospitality. And the idea is that love and hospitality are intertwined. That if you want to know what love looks like, it looks like creating a space of welcome where the other can feel at home. Well, who are we talking about when we say the other? Okay, and it's very interesting, I think, that Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? Well, why would he feel the need to say Offer hospitality without grumbling. The implication is that the kind of hospitality Peter is talking about is hard. Loving the other is hard. And so when we talk about the other, we're really talking about three groups of people. People who are different from you, people who are difficult, and people who offer you little to no benefit at all. Okay? People who are different from you people who, are, who, live in, who have a different life stage, different ethnicity, different socioeconomic background, different political affiliation, people who are difficult. We're talking about those people in your life that you struggle to get along with. Could be a family member or someone in your friend group. But lastly, people who offer you little to no benefit at all. And this is a big one here in Los Angeles where so many of our relationships are transactional, where it's very easy to be hospitable to those who can help further our own personal agenda. But honestly, you don't have to be Christian to do that. We are naturally inclined as human beings to be hospitable to those who are like us, who act like us, who dress like us, who look like us, who vote like us, who have similar values to us. But that's not the kind of hospitality Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about the kind of hospitality to those whom we are not naturally inclined toward. In Luke 14, there's a section where Jesus is talking, he's at a dinner party and he's talking to his host. And he says, look, when you have a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, don't invite your brothers and sisters, don't invite your relatives, don't invite your rich neighbors, because if you do, like, if you do invite them, they might invite you back, and you're going to be repaid. And he said, the next time you throw a banquet, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, and you will be blessed. And let me just tell you, that kind of hospitality is transformative. Um, up to the second grade, I went to a small Lutheran school in Lakewood, California, and I was the only Asian kid in the entire school, and this is before Asian food and Asian culture were a thing. 
and my mom would pack me. Like now looking back, I feel so sad that I didn't fully enjoy like these beautiful bento boxes that my mom would pack me with rice and kimchi and dumplings. And um, I hated, like I hated lunchtime because every time I opened my lunch, all the kids would be like, what's that smell, you know? Um, and I would beg my mom to buy me Lunchables. And it's like, I tried Lunchables recently and they're disgusting. You know, I don't even know why, but they were just so cool back then because everyone brought them. And, you know, my, my mom probably was like, are you serious? You want that over the food I'm cooking you? Um, and you think that as a, like a second grader, you wouldn't care about these things, but you do care. And they do matter. And every day lunchtime would give me like deep anxiety. I would either try to eat as fast as I possibly could, or sometimes I would purposely forget my lunch so that the school would have to call my mom and she'd have to bring me McDonald's, okay? And um, nobody wanted me to sit at their table, and that's like traumatizing as a second grader. And um, some of you already know this story, and I talk about it all the time because it's like my roots, but this is also before I cha officially changed my name to Jason, so I still had my Korean name, which my parents spelled incorrectly on my birth certificate, so my legal name was Chunky Min. And um, so by all measures, I did not fit in school at all. Okay, I was a Korean boy named Chunky who brought weird food to school, okay? But there was one day when a kid named Nathan Myers, okay, and I still remember his name. This is how impactful, like, this moment was. His, his mom was actually a fifth grade teacher at our school, so everyone knew who he was. He was super popular, and I was eating kimbap, which is, like, these Korean seaweed rice rolls, and he asked me if he could have one. Okay, and this part, I, I'm probably making this up, being dramatic, because like, it felt like the entire school was looking at that moment, right? And you know, I, in my mind, that's what happened, and so that's reality, okay? Everyone's looking, and I give him one, and he puts it in his mouth, and he's like, mmm. And he's like, wanna trade? And like, it was such a simple act, but after that, it felt like I was cool all of a sudden. And every day, there was a seat open at his table, and he would be like, Chunky, come sit down, right? <laughs> like, this seat is for you. And we became best friends. Second, the rest of second grade was amazing. And it was such a simple act of hospitality, creating a space of welcome where I, the outsider, could feel at home. And there are few things that are more viscerally experienced than a person when a person receives hospitality, when somebody makes room at the table for you. I may have been seven years old, but I felt all of that, and I still remember it to this day. And when I think about a practice that can transform the world, a practice that we so desperately need to recover in our current culture, it's this practice of hospitality. We live in a time right now that is increasingly inhospitable. Rather than creating spaces of welcome, we're constantly drawing lines in the sand. We see more tribalism, more um, exclusion than ever before. We're seeing a loss of civility and discourse. You have people blasting each other on Twitter every day, creating boundaries of who's in and who's out. There's no more giving people the benefit of the doubt anymore. We make snap judgments. We keep people out of our lives who are different from us or disagree with us. 
And our first instinct is no longer to welcome, but to cancel, right? And we create these arbitrary standards and we just cancel people who don't fit those standards. The Atlantic ran an op-ed recently about cancel culture and the title of the article was The Move to Eradicate Disagreement. And the idea of the article was that in this world today, we all have a set of values uh, that we use to turn people into the other. And we keep people out. And now, rather than actually create space for more voices at the table, our first move when someone disagrees with us or says something we don't like is to demonize them and dehumanize them. We basically eliminate them from our lives, right? And so more and more, we find ourselves sitting at tables with people who think exactly like us, who look like us, who act like us, because we would never want to be caught dead sitting at a table with them with those people. In the first century Jewish society, who you sat with for meals said a lot about you. Okay, um, they even had a term for this, it was called table fellowship. And sharing a table with someone meant you were inviting that person into your life. It meant that you were sharing life together. And so a teacher of the Torah, a respectable religious leader, would never be caught dead eating with someone who society deemed unworthy or unclean. But when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, his table was always full of people the world would have canceled. Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners. The villains of society. And I think like, you know, like uh, you've seen the shirts like Jesus is my homeboy. Like we, we like to romanticize this image of Jesus as a super punk rock guy who used to like hang out with rebels and misfits. Like Jesus was really cool. No, most scholars say that actually the best way to think about how society viewed tax collectors and prostitutes in Jesus' time was the way our society views pedophiles and racists. And I want you to imagine that just for a moment. Imagine you're scrolling through your IG feed and you see your community group leader having dinner with a known racist. What would go through your mind? And you have to ask yourself, if you were living in Jesus' time, would you really have followed him or would you have canceled him? Because he was hanging out with all the wrong people. This is why he was so despised by the religious leaders of his day. They had good reason to hate the man. And while Jesus never condoned sin or evil or injustice, it never stopped him from making room at the table for those the world had written off. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. So the big question for us today is who's at your table? Who's at your table? both literally and figuratively. Or maybe a better question is, who's not at your table? And why are they not at your table? Is it because they're too liberal? Too conservative? Not enough followers? Too Christian? Not Christian enough? What lines have you drawn where you say, this is me and that's them? Who have you in your mind deemed as the other? Hospitality is opening your heart and your life to create a space of welcome for that person. And the beautiful thing about hospitality is that though this is very hard, okay, Peter acknowledges it. He says, do it without grumbling. It's very hard. 
it's actually radically ordinary. It's one of the few things you can put into practice immediately. It's opening your home. It's inviting someone out to lunch. It's a conversation over coffee. It's giving someone a helping hand. It's giving someone a hug or a word of encouragement. Right? It's so simple and yet so profound and powerful. Uh, Tim Chester, who has this great book called Meals with Jesus, he knows that in the Gospel of Luke, food in Jesus appears 50 times. Jesus is always going to a meal, he's always at a meal, or he's always coming back from a meal. You would think that Jesus, the Son of God, would spend all his time in the temple praying, singing, worshiping, teaching, doing religious things. Most of the time, he's just eating with people. And he's showing us that the way to change the world is not through more content or more theology or more information. The way to change the world is through connection and relationship. Lives are changed around tables. In Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, we read it a few weeks ago. The last line in that story says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Right? It's this beautiful one-liner that really summarizes what Jesus came here to do. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But what most people don't realize is that back in those days, Scripture was read out loud to a group of people. And so what most people don't realize is that for an early Jewish listener, they would have heard that and their, their ears would have instantly perked up because they're like, for the Son of Man, I've heard that phrase somewhere. And they would have immediately thought about Luke 7, where in Luke 7, you know what it says? He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, but they're like, I remember that, for the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Scholars say that Luke 19 is the why, Luke 7 is the how. Jesus' mission was to save people from their brokenness. Jesus' method was through eating and drinking. Radically ordinary hospitality. Not through more sermons or podcasts, through eating and drinking, which means every single person in this room can be a conduit of God's love in the places they live, work, and play. You may not all have the ability to preach sermons, but there's one thing you all do, eat and drink. And you say, well, I don't have, an, I don't have a big enough house to host people. Jesus was homeless. You say, well, I'm too busy. I got so many things on my plate. Jesus was saving the world. You say, I don't have enough time, money, and resources. Jesus was very poor. And sometimes the most powerful thing Jesus gave to people, and the only thing he had to give was his presence, and that was enough. All of us have the ability to practice hospitality. Well, what exactly about hospitality is so transformative? What happens when we begin to open our hearts, our homes, and our lives to those who are different from us, to those who are difficult, to those who offer us little to no benefit? Healing happens. The word hospitality and the word hospital have the same etymology. Have you ever thought about that? That every time you practice hospitality, you create a little hospital everywhere you go where people get healed. It's very interesting, um, there's this uh, story in Luke 5 when the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus uh, for eating with a group of tax collectors. And you know what Jesus' response is? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And the implication is that what I'm doing in this moment, eating with these tax collectors, is an act 
of healing. Right now, there is a loneliness epidemic in the world. So much so that they are saying that the great, the next great epidemic, which is already here, is not COVID, it's not cancer, it's loneliness. Right? Several countries now have a minister of loneliness. They have someone in their parliament, in Congress, so, whose job is specifically dedicated to helping people find community. And I can tell you that that is the number one thing I hear at this church when people come to L.A. We're looking for community. We're lonely. And there is nothing worse than having to navigate the broke. I mean, having to navigate the brokenness and grief of this life is so hard in and of itself. The only thing harder than that is to have to navigate these things alone. But every time we practice hospitality, we heal someone's wounds of loneliness. We heal the wounds that have been the result of abandonment and exclusion. We heal racial and social divides. And I don't want to oversimplify this, and I don't want to be too simplistic about this, but one thing I can be sure of is that the kind of healing our world needs right now is not another infographic that gets shared on, that gets shared on social media. Honestly, you know where healing will happen? Around the table. As we open our homes and our lives to others and we actually start to listen to each other and listen to each other's stories. And it's not just the recipients of hospitality who get changed. We get changed. We get healed. Okay, and let me give us exactly, let me show us how, exactly how that happens. Number one, hospitality humanizes the other. When we make room at the table and open our homes or extend our, a hand to help someone in need, what we are doing is we are bringing people close. So much of the division and hostility we're seeing right now stems from the fact that technology, as much as it seems like it's connecting people, is actually allowing us to keep people at an arm's length. It is very easy to hate someone from behind a computer screen. It is very easy to hate someone when you can't see their face grimace when you say something or when you leave a comment or you put something on their post. Let me just tell you, like, when that happens, the people there, they are just an IG handle. They are just a red hat. They are just a talking head. And we have all of these assumptions and they're not even human anymore. It is way harder to hate someone when you're sitting across the table from them, looking them in the eye, passing them the mashed potatoes. Try to do it. Like, you're like really mad, and then they're like, oh, shoot, can I get some mashed potatoes? They're like, all right, fine. Very hard. Hospitality humanizes the other. Two, hospitality reveals our own blind spots. Here's what's going to happen when we begin to open our hearts and our lives to people who are different from us or people who are dif difficult. You and I will start to see the worst parts of ourselves. And that's going to kind of suck. But we cannot change something we aren't aware of. If you want to know your privilege, start hanging out with people who are less privileged than you are. And you will see immediately in your conversation how so much of what you say and how you think comes from a place of privilege. 
If you want to learn forgiveness, if you want to learn humility, if you want to learn patience, spend time with people you're probably going to have to forgive sometimes and you're probably going to have to be patient with. Right? And obviously there's some discernment there and sometimes boundaries are healthy, but I think our natural impulse is always the moment someone doesn't quite fit into our box, we say, yeah, I'm going to pass. I'm going to keep my distance. Yeah, I'm not inviting them. Hospitality reveals our own blind spots. And finally, hospitality forges true community. Not a community built around sameness where everyone agrees with you, but a robust community built around difference where we embrace and we value the image of God in every human being, where we welcome the beauty and uniqueness of another person's life into our own, where our posture is not, you know what, our life would, my life would be so much better without you, but our posture is, my life would not be the same without you. I need you in my life. You know, I mentioned Rosaria Butterfield's book, and for those of you who don't know who Rosaria Butterfield is, she was a liberal feminist professor at Syracuse University whose specialty was in queer theory, okay? And in the late 90s, she wrote an extremely controversial op-ed just blasting this, uh, I don't know if you remember, this 90s Christian men's movement called the Promise Keepers, okay? And like a whole bunch of Christian men would get into stadiums and like, you know, they would get together and the article was a blistering condemnation of Christianity, patriarchy, and of Christian men in general, okay? Well, she opens the mail one day and she gets this letter and it's like on this beautiful stationery and she gets this letter in response to her article from a man named Ken Smith and he's an older evangelical pastor and at the end of this letter uh, basically the, Ken Smith says would love to have you over for dinner and she's like oof like I could be walking into a trap here um, but you know what this is going to be great for my research because I know that this guy's going to try to mansplain everything to me. Uh, I know that, like, I feel like his entire church is going to be waiting there, like, to, like, pray for me and try to, like, pray the gay out of me. And, like, you know, I, I know that, like, this, he's going to see me as a project. And I know that, like, he's just going to confirm everything I believe about evangelicals. Well, she gets to his house, and she's surprised to discover the exact opposite. It was just his wife. Floyd and Ken, this elderly couple, having her over for dinner. And they just talked about life. They talked about their stories. Floyd even cooked a vegetarian meal, knowing that she was vegetarian. And that was it. And you know what happened? She came over the next week, too. And the week after that. And the week after that. And soon they became great friends and they started to share life together. And then at some point, Rosaria said, you know what, can I start bringing over some of my friends too? And she brings over her friends, and she talks about how no matter who she brought, this couple treated them like family. And when asked about her journey, she often says, at the end of the day, I attribute everything that happened to me to this home. And she says, one day she thought to herself, I don't know what the heck Ken Smith has, but whatever it is, I know we need a lot more of that in the world. And so one day she said, hey, Ken, can I ask you some questions about the Bible that I think are very problematic? Can I check out your church? 
can we talk about why Christians believe X, Y, and Z? And they sat down and they had a conversation. And over time, God used these simple acts of hospitality to draw this woman to the faith. And she said, at the end of the day, it was meals. It was friendship without strings attached. It was a pastor and his wife who were known for a different viewpoint than mine, who were not afraid to open their door to welcome me in and sit with me. And in this home, Rosaria Butterfield was no longer one of those raging liberals. And Ken Smith was no longer one of those misogynistic, patriarchal, evangelical pastors. It was two humans learning to see the image of God in one another. And healing happened. How do we practice hospitality? Okay, because this sounds beautiful, but like I mentioned, hospitality is hard. Okay, do we just grit our teeth and like right after this service, do we think about the most difficult person in our lives and invite them to lunch? It's like, God, I don't want to do that, right? I, I get it. Right? And I think a lot of times sermons like this end with, so just open your homes and just be uncomfortable and just do it. But the Bible tells us that the power to practice hospitality comes from the hospitality you and I have first received. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. One thing I notice as I get to know people is that, and no offense, if, you were, if you're the type of person who has always been on the in crowd and the popular person in this school, good for you, okay? Great, okay? Not everyone has had that experience, okay? But one thing I found that those who've like always been on the inside, like they tend to struggle with hospitality because they don't know what it's like to be an outsider. Like, some of, I think some of the people who show the greatest acts of hospitality are those who come to the city who had no friends and who had to figure out how to find community by themselves because they know the ache of loneliness. They know what it's like to not be invited, to be excluded, to be abandoned, to not be on the inside. And I would say a lot of times, those are the people who are naturally prone to hospitality because they've experienced it firsthand. Someone had to bring them in from the outside to the inside. They had to have a moment in which they experienced a taste of home. We cannot become hospitable people unless we first experience the hospitality of God, unless we understand that we were also once on the outside and we had to be brought in. Peter says in verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards, get this, of God's grace in its various forms. Our hospitality is simply a response to God's grace and hospitality toward us. You see, the Bible tells us that our sin severed our relationship with God. And as a result, all human beings were on the outside looking in, and all human beings have this visceral ache for home. And we have attempted to fill that ache, fill that void with wealth and success and fame, only to discover that none of these things can truly satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. But here's the good news of the gospel. Because God loved us so much, he entered our world. He crossed every boundary. He traveled unthinkable 
distances and he became a human being. And he drew close to people who were different from him. He drew close to people who were opposed to him, who wanted nothing to do with him, people who offered him no benefit at all, people like you and me, people who deserved to be canceled by God. And yet, rather than cancel us, in perhaps the greatest act of hospitality in history, Jesus Christ hung on a cross. And he gave his life as a ransom for our sins so that you and I would be welcomed into his family. And he didn't just make room at the table. He was cast out so that you and I would be brought in. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were once strangers and aliens are now sitting at the table as members of God's household. Our salvation is an act of God's hospitality. And when we are able to grasp the hospitality we've been shown that we did not earn or deserve, that we who were hungry have been fed, that we who were naked have been clothed, that we who were once God's enemies are now called his friends, we will inevitably become vehicles of God's hospitality to others. If there is anything I would love citizens to be known for as a church, it would be that we are a hospitable community. In a world that is becoming increasingly inhospitable. People ask me all the time why we do things like city dinners and city happy hours and why we have city workshops and city movie nights. Right? Why are these things such a huge part of the DNA of our church? It's because we want to create spaces where people can practice and receive hospitality. Where people from all different walks of life, different political affiliations, different experiences can connect with one another and experience the welcome of God. Right? And I especially, you know, like, given that we're talking about hospitality today, I especially want to take a moment to recognize the unsung heroes of our church, our hospitality team. If you serve on hospitality team, we don't do this, but can you just stand up wherever you're sitting? And can we give them a big round of applause? They're like, what is this? You know, like, why are you doing this? I'm sorry. These faithful volunteers, literally you could count on one hand the number of volunteers who just stood up. And these faithful volunteers who could be doing a lot of other things on Sunday morning are here every week and I believe they are setting the table for us to experience the welcome of God. They are literally embodying love for the other. The chairs you're sitting on, the signs that you saw on the way in, the parking volunteers, sometimes standing in the rain or in the heat, the coffee many of us drink. We can often take these things for granted, but these ordinary acts of hospitality are literally creating a space for healing every Sunday. Okay, and because we're a mobile church, everything has to be set up and broken down every week on a weekly basis. Um, I'm just going to make a shameless plug here. We need volunteers for our hospitality team, okay? And so in that, on that same link on our Instagram bio, there's a, you'll see a tab that says serve. And if you're open to serving on our hospitality team, if you're looking for ways to get involved, would you consider joining this team? Some of the best people you will ever meet 
doing work that at times can be thankless and seem trivial, but I believe a team that embodies the radical welcome of God that turns strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. You know, the image that always breaks, breaks me, and I'll just close with this, is the image of Jesus on the night, uh, on the night before he's betrayed, washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Is there a more palpable image of hospitality than this? The creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, on his knees with a towel wrapped around him, washing his disciples' feet, one of them being the feet of Judas, the one who would betray him. And then upon doing this, Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this morning I pray that as we experience the hospitality of God, the God who humbled himself, emptied himself, and took on the form of a servant to welcome us into his family, that we too would now embody that same hospitality to others. Let's pray. As our worship team comes back up, I just want to give us a moment and I want us to reflect and ask ourselves, who's not at our table? Who are the people that are not at our table, that we have not made room for in our lives? And I want us to ask ourselves why they're not at the table. Is it because they're different? Is it because they're difficult? Is it because they offer us little to no benefit at all? And I think often the reason why people are not at the table and the reason we struggle to practice hospitality is that we haven't yet first received God's hospitality toward us. So in this moment, I want us to give us an opportunity to ask the Spirit to reveal that to us, for us to be served by Christ. to remember all the ways we fall short, to remember all the ways and the reasons we should have been canceled ourselves, and yet to remember a God who welcomes us in, in spite of who we are because of what Jesus has done. And let's take a moment to sit in that
Lord, I know that many of us come here with, with baggage. We come here um, holding resentment, bitterness, discontentment in our hearts. And we come here and we recognize that we fall so short of the mark. That left to ourselves, we are unworthy to sit at your table. And yet because of your great love for us, you crossed every boundary so that we would have a seat at the table. You were cast out so that we could be brought in. And God, I pray that more than anything, more than simply trying to practice hospitality because it's the right thing to do, I pray that we would first receive the incredible, unthinkable, unimaginable hospitality that has, that has been shown to us. A hospitality that while we were yet sinners, died on a cross on our behalf. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we ask that that grace would fuel us to now be embodiments of that love everywhere we go. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.